Amen. Well, it's good to have you here. And uh, we are in uh, the book of James. And uh, if you have your Bibles, you might turn there. We are in chapter one and we're slowly making our way through uh, this book. And so I'm just going to tell you right off the top, I, I seriously doubt we're going to make it through everything in your notes. So and some of you, you'll need to kind of ventilate into a paper bag uh, when you hear that. We're not going to get through everything tonight, but we'll get through it eventually. Uh, someday we've got plenty of time. We're not in a hurry. Uh, but I say it because uh, even just working on the sermon this afternoon, there's, uh, James is just going to kind of get us started tonight on a discussion that if you've read the book of James, you know it's, it, he, um, he has a way of kind of moving from topic to topic. We're going to talk about wealth and money tonight, and he kind of just gets started, and then he's going to go somewhere else and come back and go and come back. So we're just going to get the conversation started tonight. But I, I was thinking um, yesterday, so this, this past week, uh, our microwave, I guess, basically blew up. I wasn't home, but I hear it was, it kind of went out in a blaze of glory. And um, I've said, you know, bad news, you can't heat up your mochas anymore. Uh, so you might want to do something about that. So anyways, I uh, went out and, and bought a, uh, a microwave yesterday. Let me tell you, buying a microwave is a lot easier than installing an, an over-the-range microwave. So I had lots of time yesterday to think, and I don't know, for some reason, I was thinking back. It's making me think, so I guess it was 31 years ago, um, I had uh, I'd been living in Phoenix. I grew up in Orange County, moved to Phoenix to go to college. Uh, I've shared that before. Kind of when I went, wanted to get a degree in theology. Um, I was pretty much on my own. Um, had to get a job, pay for college as I went along. Um, not that I did it on my own. God definitely kind of paved the way and there were scholarships and people who helped. But I really learned in college to, to live frugally. And uh, when, I, when I graduated, uh, God just kind of paved the way so I could immediately uh, that summer, by the end of the summer, move up to Portland where I wanted to go to uh, attend Western Seminary. And uh, so I, I moved up here. And be, before I had come up, I, I visited in the summer and, and had gone to a church and uh, they wanted to hire me as their part-time youth pastor, a little, little Baptist church in Clackamas. They wanted to hire me as their youth pastor, and they're going to pay me $600 cash a month, you know. And I remember at the time thinking, oh, this is, this is, this is perfect. I couldn't work full-time anyways going to seminary, so I moved up here. Um, for the first couple months, I lived in a house with a family from church, but that was, was kind of odd and just coming and going. So I decided, you know, I make $600 a month. I can get an apartment. And so I got an apartment on Powell and 66th. Uh, I never really, I didn't know the area. It sounded great. You know, I, uh, it turned out to be pretty sketch. In fact, actually, Christy and I got married, moved into the apartment. Uh, she moved in. I don't think we were there, uh, but three, I don't know, four or five months. And uh, there was a homicide a couple doors down. We moved out. But at the time, it seemed like a great thing. 250 bucks a month all in, right? So I had 250 bucks and all my um, utilities were paid for. One bedroom, one bathroom. What else did I need? So I had 350 bucks a month to blow. Well, except for seminary uh, and tuition and books. And, and there was transportation, right? I had a car and there's gas and there's insurance and there's food, which wasn't too bad because I was at the time, I was a single seminary student in a small Baptist church. Everyone wants to feed you. So that's not a problem. And, and then clothing, but really pretty much living pretty sparsely. Like my apartment um, was kind of interesting. I had a, I had a little dining room table um, that could fit a couple of people around it with kind of to the fold down um, uh, ends on it. And I had four chairs. I couldn't afford wood chairs. So I went to the store and I bought four of those, you know, those um, metal 
chairs, like the, the, the kind of cheap chairs that are wire. And so I bought like four of those and I got some pads and we had those. And I, I had, somebody gave me um, a bed to sleep on and a nightstand. And I didn't have any furniture in the living room, but I had a nightstand and on that nightstand I had a TV. Like that was my one, you know, kind of really cool possession. I had a 19 inch color TV with a remote control, which was kind of like a big deal. Uh, no health insurance. Uh, no money for vacations, no cable TV, uh, no dining out budget, no savings, no, no mad money. And every now and then, um, well, Christy and I got married and moved into that apartment. I can remember we would, like on a Friday night, we'd have a big date. We'd walk to the 7-Eleven which in itself was an adventure. Uh, I was about seven blocks away and we'd get like a big gulp. You guys remember big gulps? Yeah, and we get like a big gulp and that was like a really, that was a really big night for us. And, and so this week, you know, I, yesterday I'm working on the microwave and um, I'm thinking to myself while I'm installing it, because I just, you know, you think back and it struck me that I was, when the microwave died, I was able to drive down to Home Depot and I could just buy a microwave oven and I could just bring it home and install it myself. Um, it was not a financial trial for me to do that. It was inconvenient, but it was definitely not a financial trial. And it got me to thinking about how we don't always differentiate the difference between those two, do we? Sometimes we think they're the same thing. And they're not the same thing. A, a, a trial, a financial trial, is not the same as being inconvenienced. Um, like a, a, a trial would be if the microwave was the only thing that I had, the only means to cook food, and it died, and I couldn't replace it because I didn't have the money, and now I have no way to cook food. That is a trial. But what I was going through was just an inconvenience. Uh, like today, if my car broke down, uh, within reason, I could take it and I could pay someone to fix it. It probably wouldn't be a trial for me. It would be an inconvenience for me, as it probably would for many, maybe many of you. It would mean I probably couldn't use that money for some other non-essentials. But it really wouldn't be a trial, it would be an inconvenience. When I lived on Powell Boulevard, if my car broke down, which it did at times, that was actually a trial. It was a trial because I didn't have money to fix it. In fact, this is the way it almost always worked. I didn't have the money to fix it, so I would fix it myself. You can't even imagine how ridiculous that statement is. I know nothing about vehicles, but I would get out, you know, no internet yet. I'd get a book and I'd read, and that almost always went this way. I could tell you all sorts of stories about how I fixed my car, and then once I fixed it, I had to save up money so someone else could fix what I fixed, and then the original problem as well. But you know, thinking back, I'm like, if my car had broken down and I, and there were times when I couldn't get around and I'd have to use a, I had a bike and I'd have to ride my bike. And I would think like, you know, this is really a trial. And yet, um, I guess I could have always taken public transportation, right? So even then, like, is it a trial? I, I look back and this is the question I wonder. When I was living on Powell on, on a little bit of money, Christy and I got married. We're both, so she's going to college, I'm going to seminary, and we're living on $600 a month. It's, it's crazy. I look back, I think, were we, were, were we poor or were we rich? And it would really depend on who you asked, wouldn't it? Because a lot of people, you could, you could give them that scenario and they'd say, wow, you were poor, how did you even get by? But there's literally billions of people, billions of them in the world would say, you were rich, you had, you had an apartment, 
You had, you had running water that you could drink. You had, you know, you had a car. You had food on the table. And so I tell you this because we're going to kind of look tonight, we're going to talk about this whole concept of, of trials and, and of money. And, and James, so, so James is Jesus' little brother. Right? We talked a little bit about that. Um, he came along in the family after Jesus was born. They had the same mom. They had different dads. Um, this book that we're studying was written to, to believers. And these believers are living difficult lives. These are people, by and large, who at one point were living in Jerusalem or in the area they became believers. Um, they began to be persecuted. They scattered throughout the region. Um, many of them had to flee from their jobs. They had to flee from their homes. Some of them had to flee from their families. They're living in the outskirts of the area there, and now they're still being persecuted. These are people who were legitimately poor. Like we wouldn't have to wonder, were they poor, were they not poor? These are poor people. Now James knows this, knows this about them and he wants to encourage them. So he's gonna give them two paradoxes and we're gonna look at those tonight. Now a, when, we, when we talk about a paradox, we could say this. A paradox is a statement that seems contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet in fact may be true. So for instance, the Bible is full of paradox. Uh, you know, the weak are strong, uh, the least is the greatest, uh, death brings life. Um, G.K. Chesterton said this, a, a paradox is truth standing on its head, shouting for attention. It's a liter literary device to get you to, to, to sit up and to listen to what's being said. This is what James wants to do. So he's going to give us a couple of paradoxes tonight about Christians and about wealth. He, he wants to get us thinking. A lot of times when we think about wealth, we don't always ask the right questions. Like, here's a question that people debate about a lot. Um, you know, should Christians be rich or should Christians be poor? Right? And there's been whole groups within Christianity over the years that would say, well, Christians should be rich. In fact, you can still find churches and, and pastors who will teach that today. If you're in the blessing of God, if you're living right, if you're living godly, then you're going to be rich and you're going to have a big house and you're not going to be living on Powell and 66 and $600 a month. I mean, that's how you know you're in the blessing of God because you're rich. Other people throughout history have said, no, actually, you know, if, if you want to be like Christ, you need to be poor. Like you need to give away your stuff and you need to live on as little as possible. Now here's the, here's the problem. That's the wrong question. The wrong question to ask is should Christians be rich or poor? The right question is this. Are you godly or ungodly with whatever wealth God has given you? So because God's want to decide how much wealth you get. So the, the question is what kind of person are you with the money that God gives you? Now, this is, this is review. We, we've talked about this a lot of times. But there's, we, we say there's kind of four general categories uh, when it comes to wealth in the Bible. The first one is what we call the, the godly poor. So there are godly poor in Scripture, and, and you even probably know people like that today. These are people who love God. These are people who work hard when they're given a chance. These people have integrity. Uh, these people are generous. But for reasons beyond their control, uh, they're, they're poor. They're like the Christians that James is writing to. They're, they're godly and they're poor. Now again, some people don't think those words go together, but in fact, they do. There's also what we might call the godly rich. There are rich people in Scripture, and you may know some in your own life, uh, people that God has blessed with wealth. They, they work hard. 
They are humble people. Uh, they are good stewards. They spend wisely. They invest wisely. Uh, they are generous with the money that God has given them. Godly poor, uh, you know, uh, godly rich. The third category is what we might call the ungodly poor. So not everybody who's poor is, is godly. You may, you may have noticed this. Uh, some people are poor and it's their fault. Uh, they lack a work ethic or maybe they're just lazy or maybe they don't want to work. They don't want a job. Maybe they spend too much money. Maybe they spend it unwisely. Or they, they gamble it away. They're poor and they're ungodly with that. And then there's what we might call the, the ungodly rich. You probably saw that coming. Um, these are rich people who are unethical. I know we've never met anyone like that, but there, there are people I've, I've heard of that are un, they're rich, but they, they cheated to get, that, to get rich. They steal. They got rich by abusing and taking advantage of their employees, by taking advantage of their customers. These are people who use other people to get their wealth. They are, they're proud of their wealth. They look down on people who have less than them, and they're ungrateful to God. They will not recognize God or his place in their life. See, the important thing isn't the amount of money you have. It's your character. It's what you do with what God has given you. And so what James is going to do is he's going to give us two paradoxes. And the first one we're going to say is this. James is going to talk to us about what we're going to call uh, right there, the rich poor. The rich poor. So we get this starting in verse 9 when he says this. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now again, James is talking about the brother. A brother. He's talking about Jewish Christians. And, and ladies, don't be offended by that. He's talking about everybody, about men and about women. And the Bible often does this. For instance, you know, the Bible talks about the church as a bride of Christ. So guys, we're, we're brides, I guess, in that sense. And the Bible does this at times. Here he's talking about brothers, but he's talking about men. He's talking about women. And he says that he's talking about the lowly Christian, the, the, the lowly believer. Now, lowly here is referring to a person's financial status. And not just their finances, but I think in the context, it's also referring to all the baggage that goes with being poor. Have you noticed that? That when you're poor, it's not just that you don't have a lot of money. There's a lot of stuff that goes with this. Like, for instance, poor people by and large are often looked down on by rich people. They're often considered, you know, like they're, they're not intelligent. Um, you know, if they were intelligent, they wouldn't be poor. Ever hear stuff like that? Or maybe people say they're not ambitious. That's why they're poor. They're not ambitious. If it, as if the reason you have more money is because you're actually more intelligent than them. That's what we mean. Uh, we're more ambitious than them. Uh, you know, basically people who are poor, especially in that society, but let's face it, in ours today, they're not usually the people we admire. They're not usually the people we value. And they're not usually the people that we consider even to be people who are blessed by God. And this is what society was telling believers in James' day. In fact, I think James was very concerned that, that the believers of that day were being, were being put down by society and, and maybe the believers were starting, they were starting to think that this was true. Now, let's face it, our culture today isn't much different. Our, our culture tends to not look favorably on Christians. Maybe you've noticed that. Like, our culture doesn't really consider Christians that enlightened 
Maybe you've run into that or are often that intelligent. You know, we're considered the unenlightened, the, the unintelligent. Usually Christians, you know, we're the ones who aren't that talented. We don't tend to be admired. We're not considered logical. We're, we're more like closed-minded. We're weak people. You ever had anyone tell you, oh, well, you're a Christian. Oh, well, you need a crutch. Oh, I understand. Oh, well, that's okay for you, you know. Uh, you're, you're not a very intelligent person. I understand. And, and so our culture is a lot like it was back then in that sense. Now, he talks about the brother. He says, let the lowly brother boast. Now, the brother here is a Christian, uh, a believer, a child of God. And he says that the lowly person, he says, should boast in his exaltation. That word boast is sometimes translated as rejoice or, or glory. In fact, one literal translation here is, it says this, the lowly brother ought to boast in his height, which is kind of interesting. So there's the paradox. The lowly Christian, he says, should rejoice in his height. So what's the, what's the height that he's talking about here? James is saying that even the most destitute Christian has something to boast about, something to be excited about. Now, the boasting here is not, you know, here's what we've done, here's how we've earned God's favor, or even like sometimes we'll meet people who say they'll kind of brag because they're poor, and they'll brag because they give a lot of their stuff away. He's not even saying that. What we brag about is what God has done for us. In 1 Peter 1, in fact, it kind of does a great job of laying out some of the things that God has done for us. Notice what it says here. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just unpack a couple things that are true about the believer. According to his great mercy, so there's one thing we got right there. We have mercy, right? Mercy means that God didn't give us what we deserved, which was judgment. It says he has caused us to be born again. So there's another thing that we can, we can be excited about, that we have a brand new life, in Jesus Christ. It's not just an add-on, it's, it's brand new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So there's another great thing that we can be excited about. Jesus has risen from the dead and, and we believe that. And then he says to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept, for, uh, heaven, uh, you know, kept in heaven for you. Again, what's he saying? We have a reward. When this life is over, when the trials of this life are over, when the lowliness, you know, he says there's, there's something for us when this life is over. And it's, it's protected, it's, it's kept for you. No one or nothing can take it from you. Now, think about how, remember, these are people who had everything taken from them. And he's saying, here's, here's something exciting. The very best thing you have, no one will ever be able to take from you. Think about that for a minute. See, for those of us that are kind of rich, we, I, I, it's kind of lost on us. But they knew what it was like to have everything taken from you in this world. He says, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. He says, you, you, you've been saved from your sins. You have a future in heaven. And in this, notice, in this you, you what? You rejoice. Yeah, in this you boast. In this you are excited. Though, though now, watch this, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Who does that sound like? It sounds like James, doesn't it? Peter knows the truth. He's saying, you know what? We rejoice even when life is hard. We rejoice. Why? Because 
God has something for us that can never be taken away from us. James is saying this though. I think it's a bigger picture. You need to see yourself the way God sees you. Don't listen to what culture says about you. Now, I was thinking about this. Like if, if one of my kids was to come home uh, tomorrow or if my daughter was to you know, give me a call from Phoenix and, and let's say maybe they had a bad day. And maybe, you know, maybe somebody said, you know, you're dumb or you're ugly or, you know, you don't have any worth or value or whatever. I, as a dad, right, dad, you know, as dads, we would tell our kids the truth, wouldn't we? One of the things I would tell my kids is they shouldn't get their self-image from people who are unqualified to make that kind of value judgment. Right, so isn't that one of the, I, but even as adults, don't we fall into that? We let people have no idea what they're talking about. A culture that has no clue about what is truly valuable influence us and make us think that we are not valuable to God. What I would tell my kids is, you know what? I've been around a while. I've seen a lot of people. I would tell my kids, you know what? You are intelligent. I wouldn't just say it because I'm their dad. I'd say it because it's true. I would say you are beautiful to me. You have tremendous value. You are loved by me. You are beloved by God. You're, you're kind of a big deal. And that's what James is telling us in 1 John 3. It tells us this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. What kind of love has he given to us? That we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Right now, the world is going to tell you different things. People are going to tell you different things. They're going to tell you you're worthless. They're going to tell you you're not valuable. They're going to tell you you're not worthy. Notice what he goes on to say. The reason why the world does not know us, that is it looks at us and it doesn't recognize us. It doesn't see in us what God sees is that it did not know him. So James says, by the way, a great reversal is coming in which the low in this world will be made high. And what we'll see in the next paradox is that God's going to basically, for people of faith, he's going to, because he's talking to Christians here, he's going to kind of put us all together. The, the CEOs in this world will no longer be CEOs in heaven. The bosses in this world will no longer have that kind of, you know, power in heaven. The powerful politicians that like to push people around will no longer be powerful politicians. People with positions of authority in this world will no longer have that. And the people who are low will be made high. And James is so sure of this that he encourages the lowly people to paradoxically and cheerfully boast in their height right here and right now. In other words, don't miss this. James doesn't pity his poor brethren. He actually sees them as spiritually advantaged. And James will explain this later. We'll get to this in the weeks to come. But basically what he's going to teach us is this, that exaltation will come to the poor man, not just because he's economically poor. That's not the point. It's because his poverty produces something in him. That's the point. Poverty produces in us a humble spirit. Isn't that true? Right? It produces a humble spirit. Spirit that keeps leaning on God, that keeps trusting God because we have nothing else to trust in and trusting that God will lift us up. So the first paradox is this. The poor Christian is actually advantaged and James stands our culture on its, on its shallow head and he shouts that the low are high. 
So that's the first paradox that he gives us. Here's the second paradox that he gives us. He says this. He talks about um, the poor rich. And he gets to that in, in verse 9 again. Notice what he says here. He says, now let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Now some people read this and they think he's talking about poor believers and rich unbelievers. Absolutely not what he's talking about in the context here when you put it all together. He's talking about brothers. They're all brothers in this passage. Let the lowly brother boast, right, in his exaltation. It goes on. And, and he says, let the rich person, by extension, let the rich person boast in their humiliation. So both groups are to boast, but just in two different things, one in their exaltation, one in their humiliation. Now, I know we tend to think of rich people in our culture as privileged, but in fact, I think Scripture teaches the opposite, that rich people, spiritually speaking, are often handicapped. Like, for instance, in Mark chapter 10, you see a story that illustrates this. Remember, there's a, a rich, powerful young man who comes to Jesus. That's four pluses in that culture. He was rich, powerful, young, and he was a man. And he comes to Jesus, and he asks him, you might remember, what must I do to gain eternal life? Remember that conversation? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And he says, yeah, I've done all that. Which, you know, couldn't be true, but he's, you know, Jesus gave him a pass on that one. And then Jesus tells him, I want you to go and sell your possessions, and I want you to give them to the poor, and I want you to come and follow me. Now, it's important for us to remember, this was not a typical command that Jesus gave to people, right? This was, he didn't say this to everyone. He said this to this specific guy for a very specific reason. And in fact, it's very interesting in Mark 10, 22, when, when the uh, rich young ruler heard this, it says he was disheartened by what Jesus said. And he went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. That is, he had great wealth. And then Jesus said to his disciples, children, watch this, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Right? It, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, don't miss the ramifications here. What he's saying is it is difficult for rich, successful powerful people to enter the kingdom of God. It is difficult. Why is it difficult? Is it because they have a lot of money? Well, it's difficult because it's hard for rich, powerful, successful people to see that they are lowly sinners in need of God and that they cannot, they cannot earn their way to heaven. They cannot be good enough. It's difficult for them to see that truth about themselves. And so what scripture says is that rich people are actually spiritually disadvantaged because of the mindset that money often produces in us. For instance, in our culture, I think many people in our culture view money as a shortcut to significance. I, we see this all the time. If I'm feeling insignificant, if I'm feeling insecure, if I feel like people don't really respect me the way I want to, there, there, there's two ways you could go. One is you could just work on your character and you could be a better person. You could be more like Christ. You could work on the words that come out of your mouth and, the, and all of that stuff. But, but our culture also sees a shortcut. You could just buy it. You can, just, you can just buy respect and honor in our culture because our culture is so shallow and they fall for it every time. So if people don't really respect me, if I could just get the right clothes, 
and the right you know, label on my clothes and the right styles and shoes and accessories, people in our world are just dumb enough to actually believe I'm a more significant person or if nothing else, at least all believe that they believe that I'm a more significant person, right? So maybe who knows what they believe, but I feel like they do because yeah, I feel pretty good when I look in the mirror today. Or, you know, maybe we'll just, well, if I can just get the, the best tech, if I got the new, I don't know, what is it, the iPhone 10, right? If I can wait in line and I can make sure people see it or the Galaxy or the flip phone or, you know, whatever, whatever you have, just kind of wave that around or my 90-inch, you know, like 4K TV and, you know, I got to put it so when you drive by my house, you can see it. And people, like, I might be a shallow person, but people will think I'm significant because of my, my TV or, if, you know, maybe the, the, the vehicle I drive. You know, I think about, like, so you can drive your really nice vehicle that's impressive down the road, and then somebody who you've never met before will pull up next to you, and they'll see you, and they don't even know you, but you'll be looking at them, and they're driving their well, I don't want to say, but you know, some other vehicle that's not as good as yours and then they'll be really impressed and they'll never ever see you again. But you'll feel better about yourself because you're pretty sure they envy you now. You don't know that, but you're, you're pretty sure. Or maybe we can buy it through, you know, living in the right house or the right neighborhood or the right city or we can afford the right school or, you know, eat at the best restaurants or the, t- take the vacations or whatever it is. But in our culture, we often view it as a, as a shortcut. And this is why Scripture warns us again and again and again about the deceitfulness of riches. In fact, Jesus talks about the deceitfulness of riches that choke out the Word of God. That is the truth of God's Word. The truth that it teaches us about ourselves and our true condition and our need of God. But riches are deceitful. They make us think that we are something that we are not. And it proves unfruitful in our lives. That's what he's talking. Riches can deceive you into believing that you are someone that in fact you are not. And that money can do things for you in fact that it cannot. And that, and that you are not money. You know, we can start to think, well, I've got money and God must be happy with me and we don't realize that we are spiritually poor and in desperate need of God and his word and his grace just as much as anyone else is in need of God's grace and mercy and love. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. He didn't say it's really hard. He said you cannot. You can't do it. And yet how many of us continue to think maybe we'll be the first ones to do it. Maybe we can really, you know, half of our heart is to the money and half is to God. And Jesus says, you can't do it. In 1 Timothy, it has some good advice for us. Okay, and this is for us. This is probably for every person in this room. Because we are the rich. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That's, that's proud. Don't be proud. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. That's the danger. But on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Don't be deceived. Don't be fooled. You come to God the same way somebody who has no money comes to God. Back to James. He says, And the rich man in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. Some really encouraging words he comes to here. He talks about humiliation. What he's saying is this. For the rich person, which is probably most of us, he says, you know, when we are humbled by our trials, 
When we are humbled by trials that our money cannot fix, he says we should, we should rejoice in that. Why would we rejoice as rich people who face trials that our money cannot fix? Why would we rejoice in that? Because as he's going to say in the weeks to come, because trials remind us of the limitations of financial wealth. Because trials for us are a reality check. That there's only so much our money can do for us. I mean, wealth is no comfort when you lose a loved one, is it? And that money cannot bring them back. Or when you lose your health and the doctor says there's nothing to be done for you. What, what, what comfort or benefit can money bring at that point? Or when we are betrayed by someone or slandered by someone. See, money cannot buy your p- uh, peace of mind for you. And in trials, what he's saying here is trials are meant to drive the rich person to God. So I'm just going to assume that's all of us. And that's the point. Trials are meant to drive the rich person to God so that we will trust him and not our money. It's to drive us to a greater place of humility and, and of spiritual growth. And what he's saying here is that trials are really the great equalizer of the rich and the poor. I mean, I just love that, that, that they teach both to trust God. For the, for the poor person, what they trust is that they are valuable to God. And they may not feel like it. It may not look like it. Society may not tell them that, but, but this is faith. God says, I'm going to lift you up. You're going you're to be amazing. You're going to be awesome. Listen to me. Don't listen to the world. Don't, don't listen to your circumstances. For the rich person who is in danger of being deceived by the riches, it says it brings us down. It brings us down to reality. I think what it does is it brings the rich and the poor to the same place in utter dependence on God. It teaches both to trust in God. He says this because like, like a flower of the grass... He will pass away. For, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and its flower falls and its beauty perishes and also will the rich man, woohoo, okay, uh, will fade away in the midst of pursuits. I grew up in uh, Southern California and we had something called the Santa Ana winds. They're different than the gorge winds, I can just tell you. So, you know, the gorge winds are just cold and, and super annoying. Uh, Santa Ana winds, they would come off the desert and these winds would be hot and uh, they were powerful. And these are the kind of winds that would just scorch plants and scorch lawns and, and fuel wildfires. And what he says is, this is what it's like for the rich. They, one day, you know, we are beautiful flowers of society, uh, you know, and then and we think our money can protect us from harm. And then troubles come along and, and life heats up. And at some point it's game over and no amount of money can short circuit that. I was reading this week because it got me to thinking, like, you guys know what a mayfly is? All right, so mayfly, we don't really see those up here much, but mayflies are these little flies. They almost look like gnats, and they, they, they hatch in parts of the country, and oftentimes when they hatch, they all hatch on the same day. And there'll be all these little mayflies all around. A mayfly hatches um, completely mature, and they live for about 24 hours. Think about that. 
24 hours. And so imagine, if you will, I heard a guy talking the other day, he said, imagine a mayfly that hatches and it kind of comes out and it says, you know, well, I'm going to go and make as much mayfly money in 24 hours as I can. And then I'm going to buy a bunch of mayfly stuff and I'm going to hoard it and feel superior to all the other poor mayflies that are just hanging out and not working hard, you know, for the next 24 hours. Like we would think like that's ridiculous and mayflies life is too short. But I think that's what James is trying to say. Your life is too short because in, in light of eternity, your life is just like a blink of the eye. The fool is the one who focuses in this world on temporary wealth, on making it and spending it and hoarding it. The fool is the one who's proud of it. They think something, you know, they judge other people for having less of it. And then they spend their life, you know, buying stuff and then fixing stuff and remodeling stuff and insuring stuff and storing stuff. And they end up, ironically, becoming slaves to their stuff. And then ultimately, they leave all of it behind. All of it. What he says here is, when rich people go through trials, and when these trials are so difficult that they, you suddenly realize your money cannot get you out of this trial, what he says is, you should rejoice in that. Because trials are a good thing for the rich person. A good thing. They remind us the limit of wealth. And they remind us of where our true and lasting treasure is found. So he talks about the poor rich. And then he kind of concludes with this. And, and we're going to cut this short because we're running out of time here. And we'll, we'll come back to this. But he talks about the eternally rich. So let me give you verse 12. And this is kind of how he wraps it all up. He says, blessed is the man. So notice, we're talking about the poor. And then we're talking about the rich. And he's talking about the poor being elevated and the rich being brought down. And now he's going to put us all in the same. He's going to tie it all together. Blessed is the man. So now he doesn't care about poor and rich. It doesn't matter. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the, the sister. Blessed is the person who remains steadfast. Right. So that sounds familiar. We've talked about steadfast or spiritual toughness or, or hanging in there. Who remains steadfast under trials. That's his theme. He's been talking about trials uh, all the way through this. For when he has stood the test... He will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So he says, blessed is the person, notice, not blessed is the poor, not blessed is the rich, but blessed is the person who perseveres under trial. This is true for the rich. This is true for the poor. The important thing is, whether you're rich or poor, that you persevere, that you are steadfast in your, in, your, in your faith. See, trials in the end are kind of the great equalizer. Trials remind the poor person of their height. It, it reminds them that they are children of God. It reminds them that they are as valuable to God as anyone else on this earth, and it reminds them that a better day is coming. Trials remind the rich person of the limits of their wealth. It reminds them of where their true treasure lies. And he talks about receiving the crown of life. It's so important for us to understand what he is not saying. He is not saying that the way you get to heaven is you have to persevere. It's not what he's saying here. What he's saying is this. If you have true faith in Jesus, 
You belong to God. And one of the proofs of that is that you will persevere, not because you're so tough, but because you belong to God and God will never let you go. It's not your work. It's the work of God in you. And I, I, it seems like, I don't know why this is so confusing. I, can, I continue to have discussions with people who will say things like, well, you know, in the end, you've got to persevere and you've got to stick in there and you've got to work at it. And it's kind of, it what they forget is that faith is from God, grace is from God, perseverance is from God. It is a gift that God gives us and it's proof that we belong to God. It's not works. It's grace. It's faith. So I want to just wrap this up. What he's saying is this. Folks, rich, poor, whatever you are, trust God in your trials. If you're poor, and again, probably none of us, but there's still things to be learned from this. If you're poor, trust God in your trials. Seek him in your trials. Know that he cares. Be faithful to him. By faithful, I mean be full of faith. Trust God in those situations. Remember that your identity is, is defined by Jesus and rejoice in that. But if you're rich, which again is most of us, not all of us, I think what he's saying is this. If you're rich and you're going through a trial that is difficult, that is hard, that money can't solve, I think what he's saying is this. Lean into it. See, what do, we, what do we tend to do? If our money can't solve a problem, we try to run from it. We try to run around it. How many of us, when we're coming up against a trial that we can't just, oh, I can't just go down to Home Depot and, you know, buy a new one, but we can't fix it. How many of us ever think, this is awesome. This is so great. I got a trial I can't control. I'm going to lean into it. I'm not going to run from it. I'm going to lean into it. Why would I do that? Because I want to grow. Because I want to experience more of God. I want to experience more of his grace. I want to, I want to have a, his perspective on this thing. I, I want to be a good steward. I want to be a generous person. I want to rejoice in my Savior. Lean into it. And I think that's a big part of what James is saying to us. Those of us who are rich, don't run. Don't hide. Don't try to just solve it any way you can. Lean into it. Say, God, what do you... What wisdom, remember last week, what wisdom do you want to teach me? What do I need to know? I want to grow. I don't want to love money. I don't want to be distracted by money. I want to love you. I want to trust in you. That's the good news about trials. They, they teach us that in a way they're just reading about it cannot. Now James is going to have so much more to say about money as we're going to discover over the next five months or so. But one goal is this. One goal he's going to bring up more than once is this. He wants to foster a church. Remember he's a pastor. He wants to foster a church where people don't discriminate against one another on the basis of wealth. He wants to build a church where when people come in to the sanctuary to worship together or when they see each other on the street, they don't see what that person is worth or the car they drive or the clothes. He wants to build a family of people who love one another in 1 Timothy 1.15, it tells us this. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus, here's what we all have in common, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners. Rich sinners, poor sinners, all the same sinners. Paul says, of whom I am the foremost, and you're the foremost, and you're the foremost, and I'm the foremost. That's what we have in common. He wants to build a church where when people come together, they don't see dollar signs and what's your net worth. They see sinners 
just like them who are saved by grace, just like them who are, who are held in the faith, just like them. So here's my closing question for you because I never quite know this. But what has God been saying to you through James tonight? I mean, I, I think... I think as those who are definitely in that second class, right? We are, the, we are the rich. What are you going through right now? That instead of trying to get out of it, instead of trying to run around it, how could you lean into it? How could you learn to trust God more and lessen in your riches and value Jesus more? How could you do that? What are you going through right now? I'm gonna just pray for us and I wanna encourage you to close your eyes and bow your head and I just want to give you a moment to do that. Maybe what you need to do tonight is you need to repent. Maybe you have been proud of your wealth. Maybe you actually look down on other people in this room because of your wealth. Maybe there are people that you look down on because you think if they just worked as hard as you or had the you know, integrity you have or whatever it is, they'd... Instead of just thanking God for what he has given you, out of his grace. Maybe you need to repent of your pride. Maybe you just need to thank God for what he's given you. Maybe it's been a while since you did that. Maybe God's been encouraging you to be more generous with what you have, to trust him more. As those who are rich, what is God calling you to do tonight? your riches. Would you just talk to God about that for a minute and then I'll, I'll pray for us.